Pastor and author R.C. Sproul once said of his relationship with Christ, I don't always feel his presence, but God's promises do not depend upon my feelings. They rest upon his integrity. Often what we feel and what we know are two very different things. When Christians sin, for instance, as a general rule, we know what is right, but we don't always feel like doing what is right. So when we sin, we're choosing behavior based on feelings instead of doing what is right based on what we know is true. And it's not just sin. Sometimes, uh, right, we feel alone, even though we know that his word says he's always with us. Sometimes we feel lost, even though his word says over and over again that he's continually guiding us. Sometimes we feel unloved, even though his word says that nothing can separate us from his love. And so look, when you start making decisions for your life based on how you feel rather than on what God's word actually says, it breeds uncertainty and instability in your life. Why? Because your feelings constantly change, right? Based on all sorts of things, the amount of sleep you get, the amount of sunlight you get, the, how well your team played, everything from changes in your diet to changes in the weather. Feelings are fickle and ever-changing. God, on the other hand, never changes. His word never changes. That's why the Apostle Paul said, take every thought captive to obey Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5, because God's unchanging word is greater than our constantly changing feelings. And yet for many of us, the truth is our feelings have become our God. We are ruled by our feelings. We allow them to dictate how we interact with others, how we make decisions big and small, even the extent to which we're willing to obey God's word. And then we wonder why there's so much uncertainty and instability in our lives. Well, listen, God's chief concern for your life is not your happiness. It's your wholeness. So look, because his word is fixed while your feelings are not, there will inevitably be times in your life when following God's word will not feel good. <laughs> in fact, sometimes just the opposite. Sometimes following God's word will go against every single feeling inside of you. And those are the crucial moments in your life when you have to decide what you're going to allow to rule over your life. What feels good? or what you know to be the truth, because those two things are not always the same. The fact is sometimes, sometimes you have to consciously, intentionally work directly against your own feelings in order to do what is right, what is best, what you know is God's will. And listen, when your life is ruled by your feelings, as is so common today, even among uh, professing Christians, okay, for those who allow their feelings to become their God, the greatest evil in this world is anything that offends those feelings, including the Bible, which is precisely why there are so many professing believers today who say they love Jesus while openly rejecting his teaching. Because how they feel carries more authority in their lives than the truth. And the tragedy of living that way is that you miss out on the certainty and stability that you think you're going to find by following what feels good. 
The certainty and stability that can only be found, by the way, in Christ, in the truth of who he is and in what only he can provide for you. As we're going to see in this story today, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through 1 Samuel, where God speaks through and works through other people to direct David's life in ways that must have felt anything but good. In fact, over and over again, David had to leave behind everything in his life that felt good in order to follow what he knew was God's leading in his life. And it's such a a powerful statement about the certainty and stability that you can live in and walk in in your daily life when you choose to follow Christ instead of your feelings, particularly when those two things don't agree, as we'll see. Because from the outside uh, looking in, David's life looked like it was anything but certain or stable. It it looked like a disaster. It was like a train wreck. When in reality, he was exactly where God wanted him to be, which no matter how that may look to the world, that is always the most certain and stable life you could ever live when you're living in the center of God's will, no matter what it looks like. As we're going to see today as we pick this story up where we left off last time. So let's turn there together. First Samuel chapter 19. And we'll begin by reading the first 10 verses. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel." You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. And then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he sat in his house with a spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. So Saul tries to enlist the help and loyalty of his son, Jonathan, to help him kill David, because as we saw in the previous chapter last week, Saul was deeply jealous of David's popularity and success as a warrior and a leader in the armies of Israel. But you may also remember from the last chapter that Jonathan, Saul's son, made a covenant of friendship with David, and he intended to keep it. And so Jonathan hatches a plan to try and not only save David's life, but his place and position in the royal family as well. And so the next day, as Saul and Jonathan take their morning walk together, Jonathan begins to lay out for Saul all the good that David has done for the king and for their people. And it was a master class on how to negotiate peace, albeit short-lived, between two people as Jonathan recounts David's heroism in striking down Goliath. And he says, for he, meaning David, took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine and the Lord worked a great salvation 
for all Israel. And that's an important phrase because that phrase, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel, is the exact same phrase that Saul uses back in chapter 11 to explain to the people who are calling for revenge on Saul's enemies among the Israelites after one of their great victories in battle. If you were here, you'll remember several of Saul's men wanted him to hunt down and kill the Israelites who opposed his kingship after Samuel installed him as king. But because God had given them a great victory in battle that day, Saul says to his men who are calling for revenge, not a man shall be put to death this day. Why? Saul says, for today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. First Samuel eleven thirteen. This is the this is the brilliance of Jonathan. He uses Saul's own words to make his case for sparing David's life and indeed bringing him back into good standing in the royal court. And of course, uh, at this point, there isn't a whole lot Saul could argue with. So he takes a solemn oath. As the Lord lives, or by the life of Yahweh, he shall not be put to death. So Jonathan, the one person, remember, who's heir to the throne, this is the one person who stood to gain more than anyone else by having David killed. Instead, he saves David's life, and as a result, David returns to the king's court and the king's service. But again, uh, it's short-lived because of the nearly constant attacks of the Philistines against Israel that really punctuated the 11th century BC when this was happening as they, they almost continually fought for undisputed control of Palestine's southern coastal plain. And so as soon as David goes back to war, securing yet more victories for Saul and for Israel and for the Lord, Saul jealous, uh, his jealousy and hatred for David is rekindled. And soon after, sitting in his chambers with a spear in his hand, think about that. I mean, that, that tells you Saul's state of mind to begin with. As scholar Robert Bergen says, only a deeply troubled individual would sit armed for war inside the safest house in Israel. And so in his deeply disturbed state, Saul once again attempts to murder David. And this time David escapes never to return. For Jonathan's part, he never stopped defending David. In fact, in the coming chapters, Saul will even try to kill Jonathan, his own son, for standing up for David. And, and, and look, at any moment, David could have taken Saul down and assumed the throne if he'd chosen to. He'd long since proven his superiority over Saul as a warrior. All the people loved David, including the king's servants and his own children. The truth is, David had every advantage he needed to stage a military coup. There's no way David felt like leaving the royal court and the incredible blessings that came with it. Of course, he had every human justification not to. He could have easily decided to defend himself and his innocence to confront Saul himself, who's now tried to kill David numerous times, but he didn't. David didn't. Instead, he fled, which in no way, shape, or form could have felt good for David. But he knew what was right. He knew that it was for God alone to decide when David assumed the throne. And so against what would have felt good to defend himself, his honor, his innocence, and his promised throne, David instead chooses what he knows is right over what would feel good. And therefore, instead of fighting Saul, he allows God to work through Jonathan in order to defend him, even at the risk of Jonathan's own life. Because again, as good as it would have felt to simply dispose of Saul, be done with it, 
David knew that doing so would create a tremendous amount of uncertainty and instability for his future as king because he would be acting outside of what he knew was God's will, which is the whole point. There's no certainty or stability in this life outside of God's will. There's no certainty or stability in this life for any of us when we're outside of God's will, which means when the pressure is on in your life, when the weight of the world is bearing down on you, when you're being treated unfairly or unjustly by whoever, a family member, a friend, a coworker, an employer, a neighbor, right? Whoever it is, listen, when every single feeling inside of you wants to defend yourself, to lash out, to fight back, and you know you can, you have to remember Jesus is your defender, which means you have to allow God to be God in your life, even when that's the last thing you feel like doing. Right? Because it doesn't do you or anyone else in your life any good to have someone who will fight for you if you won't let them. Right? As easy as it would have been for David to mop the floor with Saul, what would that have communicated to everyone else who loved David, who followed him, who were loyal to him and his cause? Well, I'll tell you what it would have said to all those people who followed David loud and clear is that doing what feels right is more important than doing what is right. Because everybody knew that Saul was chosen by God to be king, that he was anointed and later publicly installed as king by the great prophet Samuel, right? Saul being king was God's doing which means Saul no longer being king must also be God's doing, not David's. Not if David is to bring certainty and stability to the kingdom. Then he has to do what he knows is right, even if it doesn't feel good. And listen, if you want certainty and stability in your own life, then you have to let God be God in your life, even when it doesn't feel good. You have to trust him enough to do what you know is right, even if it doesn't feel right. And I'm telling you, that's very difficult to do when your life is ruled by your feelings. Yet that's exactly what most people do today. Whatever feels good to them, no matter how much it may hurt those around them, no matter what the cost to other people, I'm telling you, I see it every day. People taking a stand against other people based on what they feel instead of doing what is right. And then they wonder why there's so much uncertainty and instability in their marriage or at their job or in their friendships or in their lives in general. They, they wonder why there always seems to be this ongoing turmoil in their relationships with other people. It's because they continue to do whatever feels right, whatever feels good to them, no matter how much it may hurt those around them, no matter the cost to other people, simply because it feels better than doing what is right. By the way, this is exactly how we've ended up with unfettered access to abortions in this country. Because it's certainly true, when you, being pregnant when you weren't planning on it can be a profound hardship. There's no question about that. And so instead of allowing God to be God, instead of allowing him to take care of us through the hardship, we do what feels right instead of what is right. 
even at the expense of an innocent human life. And the result, time after time after time, we know, we work with abortion recovery folks here all the time. Time after time after time, there's a nagging uncertainty and an emotional instability in the lives of the parents of that aborted child. It's the opposite of what they thought they were achieving when they took matters into their own hands instead of allowing God to be God in their lives. And listen, the truth is we all end up in situations and circumstances in this life that we didn't plan for. David certainly wasn't planning on having to run from his life from his own father-in-law, the king, when he became a part of the royal family. Right? Some of you today are facing hardships in your lives that you weren't planning on. And it can be very difficult, especially when those hardships come uh, because someone has taken advantage of you or acted against you in some way. It can be very difficult not to take matters into your own hands, to defend yourself because it feels right. But listen, you have to let God be God. Otherwise, what you're saying is, Jesus, you're not enough. You're not enough to take care of me. You're not able to defend me the way I think I should be defended, so I'll just do it myself. And I think if we're being honest with ourselves, we probably do that a lot more than we'd like to admit. We take matters into our own hands because he doesn't always deal with people the way we want him to. Right? How many times do you wish Jesus would just run somebody off the road? From <laughs> Sorry. Just being honest. He just, he just doesn't deal with people the way we want him to or think he should. Just take a, take a quick look at social media if you're not sure. We eviscerate one another on social media. Christians eating other people alive in front of the rest of the world. Listen, I hope you understand it doesn't matter how deeply or offensively wrong the other person may be. You have no right to publicly degrade another human soul who was created in the image of God just because you disagree with their politics or opinions. What we do and say to other people has an effect beyond just you. Right? What David did concerning Saul affected the kingdom of Israel. And what you do concerning other people in your life, it affects the kingdom of God, the other people you're connected to. It's never just about you and how you feel. It's about doing what is right, regardless of how you feel. And then letting God be God. Letting Him do what He's going to do in the hearts and lives of those other people. And I'm just telling you, when you start to live your life that way, when you start giving those difficult situations and those difficult people in your life to God instead of constantly trying to defend yourself and your own interests, that's when you begin to experience certainty and stability in your life on a whole new level because you're no longer carrying this weight of something or someone that you were never meant to carry in the first place. Jesus is. And listen, if you will let him... He will. Jesus will fight for you and defend you so you don't have to. Author A.M. Brewster said, When you feel alone, unloved, and powerless, your emotions are lying to you. Let's keep reading. Verses 11 through 17. 
Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair on its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. When the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? So no sooner than David makes his escape from the royal residence, Saul puts David's own home under surveillance in order to kill David as he leaves his house in the morning. And Michael, David's wife and daughter of Saul, she knows her father all too well and the motives of his heart for, as we'll see in the coming chapters, in fact, even in this story, uh, the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. And yet Michael loves David, and so the Lord uses her to save David's life from the hand of Saul yet again. You understand, this is the word of the Lord guiding David through his wife. If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. And so David listens to the wisdom of his wife. And there's a whole sermon for another day right there for all, for all of us husbands in this one verse. Okay, and all the wives said, Amen. And so... She lowers David down through the window and he makes his escape. And then to buy David more time to get out of town, she takes an image and lays it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. Okay, the image, a teraphim in the Hebrew, was a household god. It was a family idol, a life-sized, human-shaped pagan idol that Michael had in their home. And interestingly enough, the prophet Samuel, back in chapter 15, verse 23, compares Saul's rebellious behavior toward God as being equal to the evil of teraphim, he says. In other words, Michael's affinity for idol worship, just like her behavior in later chapters, as we'll see, probably came honest, right, from her own father. But at least in this instance, she puts the otherwise worthless pagan idol to good use. She lays it in the bed and puts some goat hair at its head and covers it with David's clothes. And then she claims that David has coronavirus when Saul's henchmen come calling for him. And so they don't want to have anything to do with it. So they go back to Saul and they tell him that David is sick in bed, to which Saul replies, that's fine. Then pick up the bed and bring him to me in it that I may kill him. And of course, that's when they discover it's all a ruse, right, to give David time to get away. And Saul is furious with his daughter. So he asks her, why have you decided, uh, deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he's escaped? And being as dishonest as her dad, Michael answers Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? In other words, according to Michael, I had to let David go because he threatened to kill me. And Saul, uh, you know, there are two peas in a pod, Saul and Michael. He probably knew that was a lie, but it didn't matter because her claim only bolstered Saul's justification that David needed to die, right? Because according to his own wife now, David has threatened to kill the daughter of the king. So it's a convenient lie for both Michael and Saul. And so now Saul is on the hunt and David is on the run. 
And not only do we know exactly what was on Saul's heart and mind, because this story tells us, but we also know exactly what was on David's heart and mind as well, because this was the very night that David composed Psalm 59. It begins with, to the choir master, according to do not destroy a victim of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. This was the very night David wrote Psalm 59, which goes on to say, Deliver me from my enemies. Oh my God, protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. You see, David knew exactly who to turn to in his darkest hour. And, and this song, by the way, wasn't written out of fear. Okay, as we saw last week, when Saul asked David to kill 100 Philistine warriors in order to have Michael's hand in marriage, David killed 200. He was not afraid of a fight, but he also knew when to let God fight for him, when to let God be God in his life. And so this psalm, uh, this is a glimpse into David's heart that night as he's running in the thick of night away from his house. It's a call for God to defend him. It's also a call for God to shelter him, which we'll look at next. But right here, it's a call for God's guidance in David's life. As he says in verses 9 and 10, Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. You see, David knew that God was personally guiding him. Through every circumstance, through these other people, he knew the word of the Lord had come through Jonathan and now through Michael. And it was sustaining him through the most difficult circumstances of his life, right? If he had chosen not to listen to Jonathan or not to listen to Michael, this story would have a very different outcome. But David knew that any certainty and stability he could ever hope for in his life would only come by following the guidance of God in his life. That's why he says, I'll watch for you. And it's no different for us today. Okay, Jesus is not just your defender. Jesus is your guide. And yet having a guide doesn't do you any good if you don't follow him. Right? If you don't watch for him, as David says, and where he's leading you. God spoke to David through Jonathan and through Michael. But David still had to choose to listen and follow that guidance because I'm just telling you there is absolutely no way that David felt like being run out of his own home. To leave your home, your wife, your life as you know it, that didn't feel good at all. I'm certain what would have felt much more natural would have been to stay and fight, particularly given David's ability and propensity to fight. But that wasn't God's will for David. And so he made what must have been a profoundly difficult decision against all of his own strong feelings to leave his family and his home in the dead of night like a common criminal, even though he'd done nothing wrong. And look, there are going to be times in your life when circumstances require you to make a profound decision between what feels right and what God's word says is right, because those two things are not always the same. And it is in those moments that you have to put your feelings aside and follow the guidance of God's word, at least if you want the certainty and stability that following him leads to. Yet the, the truth is, sadly, we're living in an era of the church today 
that is marked by a profound biblical illiteracy. And we're without excuse because by and large, our ignorance of God's word exists by our own choosing, at least in this country. Listen, in the Western world, we have better and more available access to the word of God in more translations and more commentaries and more studies and life applications than at any other point in human history. You understand, there are still people in other parts of the world today who do not have access to the Word of God in any form, while we in the West have unlimited access 24-7 at our fingertips to the Word of God in every form imaginable. But you wouldn't know it based on the level of basic understanding of God's Word by the average church member in America today. Just read some of the Barna studies. They're staggering. Why is that? It's because it's more convenient and expedient to our own desires in life to follow what we feel instead of following the truth of God's word. And as a result, there are influential leaders who are following their feelings and making up all kinds of new rules about which parts of the gospel apply to us today and which parts do not. And if you don't follow their perspective, their own interpretation of the word of God, then you're a narrow-minded, bigoted, intolerant, arrogant simpleton who will wither away into the wrong side of history, forgotten and irrelevant. So, so after 16 centuries of biblical orthodoxy guiding the church of Jesus Christ, We've now decided it's time for our doctrine and theology to change based on the social and political sensibilities of popular culture in the West. It is the very height of arrogance and ignorance. Yet it's also the reality that is facing the American church today, and it's going to continue to spread as long as our culture continues down the path it is currently on, because we're far more concerned today about being in tune with our own feelings than being in tune with the truth of God's word. And the, pro the problem with that is the church, you and me, we were meant to be the keepers and harbingers of the truth. And there's only one truth, the gospel of Christ, as it has been given to us by God. You don't have to be brilliant to see. Look, that uncertainty and instability are increasing in our society. The further we distance ourselves from the guidance of God's word in this country. By the way, um, I hope you know, a presidential election isn't going to fix this. A conservative Supreme Court isn't going to fix this. A majority of our choosing in Congress isn't going to fix this. The only thing that will ever fix this is when individual Christians like you and me decide to put down the phone, put down Facebook, put down the news stories, put down all of our distractions and pick up the Bible and let it begin to guide us through our daily lives. Andrew Womack said, one of the things I've learned is that many Christians never let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. I think it's time we change that, don't you? Let's finish our story for today. Verse 18 to the end of the chapter. 
Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth, and it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they're in Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. He too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. <laughs> so David, under the cover of night, makes his way to Samuel's home at Ramah, about an hour and a half away. And together they travel to Naoth, which means dwellings or tents in the Hebrew. At this point in uh, Israel's history, the prophets would often live together in encampments or settlements. And this was one of those settlements where Samuel presided over the prophets as they engaged in worship and praise to God almost continually. In fact, when it says they were all prophesying, it isn't saying they were all necessarily predicting the future. The Hebrew word here for prophesying refers to any supernatural inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which certainly included praise and worship. So David takes refuge with Samuel among the prophets of Israel. Of course, a place where you can be certain the Spirit of God was strong, which uh, is evidenced by the fact that the three times Saul sends his men to bring David back, all three times they're overcome by the Holy Spirit, and they join in the praises and worship of God with the prophets. So Saul figures, okay, you want a job done right, you have to do it yourself. So he goes to the encampment only to meet the same fate, but with even more intensity as he strips himself naked and completely undone and humiliated by the power of God. He finds himself unable to come out of a prophetic trance all that day and all that night. And once again, David remains untouched by Saul. So in his, his time of greatest distress, the most difficult circumstances of his life, at least to date, David knew exactly where to go. He knew to run to the prophet Samuel because that's where the power of God was at work. Just listen to the end of Psalm 59, this song David wrote. That night he ran to Samuel's house. He says, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress, a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Okay, look, when your life is turned completely upside down, when everything seems uncertain and unstable and it looks like everything is crashing down around you, there is only one place to run. Jesus is your refuge. But that means you have to run to him. 
You have to run to him before you call your friends to commiserate, before you start planning your next move, before you let your emotions run wild, before you respond to that person who hurt you, even though that is exactly what you feel like doing, before you do anything else. When your circumstances or relationships are bearing down on you, run to Jesus because he is a fortress for you to take refuge in. Right? There, there's no way David felt like living his life on the run, right? The day before, he was a member of the royal family living and working in the royal court, loved by the people, loved by his wife, loved by his friends. And now he's a fugitive who will soon be living in caves in the wilderness. I guarantee you nothing about David's decision to flee felt good. But he knew where to take refuge before making any decisions about what to do next. And as a result, David's life, as uncertain and unstable as it must have appeared to those on the outside looking in, it was actually rooted in the center of God's will, the most certain and stable place your life could ever be. So look, if your marriage is falling apart today, Before you talk to one more person about it or retaliate one more time, run to Jesus. If you're facing an impossible situation that looks like it, it could wreck your life before you do anything to try and fix it, run to Jesus. If you're fearful about your future because of what's happening in your life or in the world around you, listen, before you waste one more thought on worry or one more breath speaking doubt over your life, run to Jesus. If you're tired of fighting the same battles that you cannot seem to overcome day after day, month after month, year after year, listen, before you throw in the towel, run to Jesus. Because no matter how hopeless, how pointless, how lost or broken your life may seem to be, there is a fortress you can run to, a place of refuge where the power of God resides. It's a place of hope where there's healing and strength and power and peace and love and mercy and deliverance for every power of hell that has come against you. There's freedom from every sin and every addiction. There's mending for every broken heart and wholeness for every shattered life. But it can only be found in one place so before you look to anything or anyone else in your greatest hour of need when all hope seems to be lost run to Jesus run to Jesus run to Jesus because although our our circumstances and our feelings about those circumstances are constantly changing that's true of all of us but God never changes. His word never changes. And listen, as much as he wants you to be happy, and he does, still, God's chief concern for your life is not your happiness. It's your wholeness. It's the certainty and stability that only comes when your life is hidden in his Let's pray.